Hello, and welcome to Inside Policy Talks, the premier video podcast of the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, Ottawa's most influential public policy think tank. At the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, we harness the power of Canada's brightest minds to tackle Canada's greatest challenges. Learn more at macdonaldlaurier.ca. Hi, my name is Balkan Devlin. Welcome to Inside Policy Talks. Today, I am joined by uh, two uh, important experts on uh, the Baltic Sea and geopolitics. Uh, Alex Diel, who is a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute, and Henry van uh, Hannen, uh, in, uh, from uh, a research fellow at the Finnish uh, Institute for International um, Affairs. Uh, gentlemen, uh, welcome to Inside Policy Talks. Thanks, Paul. Great to be here. Uh, Thanks. Awesome. So um, let me start uh, with uh, highlighting a, a recent piece uh, that you wrote uh, for Inside Policy, a McDonald Laurier's uh, uh, you know, premium uh, uh, platform uh, for uh, policy ideas, uh, focusing on the recent incidents in the Baltics uh, uh, regarding the undersea infrastructure, uh, specifically the um, uh, the incident that took place about a month ago, um, the initial um, uh, event on October 8th, uh, the Baltic Connector undersea uh, natural gas pipeline and nearby uh, a telecommunication a cable link between Finland and Estonia uh, were damaged, which followed by about a week uh, later uh, a, by a damage to another cable, this time in Sweden and Estonia. Um, this came, uh, as, 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 as you know, uh, on top of uh, similar incidents in the past um, year, um, which highlights uh, an important uh, issue, that is, how are we going to protect the uh, critical uh, undersea infrastructure, be it energy uh, or telecommunication, that actually undergirds uh, most, of, uh, most of global uh, connectivity uh, today. So uh, let me, with you, Henry, um, and then and then, and then get to Al. Uh, could you give us sort of capsule um, uh, of of your uh, of your uh, your article uh, with Alex uh, for inside policy? What is the problem? What happened? Uh, and, and why are we concerned? Well, the core issue that we state is that we are living in a reality where incidents uh, against critical infrastructure. Uh, is becoming more and more common. I mean, I'm talking about hostile actions. And the other thing is that the attribution of these actors to find the evidence to indicate the intentional uh, willingness behind this or to just be able to attribute if it's, if it's a state actor or not, that's going to be a challenge for us. And therefore, I think for NATO, this demands a new mindset in terms of critical infrastructure threats that we're facing today. Because unfortunately, uh, as we see in the Baltics, in the Arctic, we've seen an increased activity by the Russians. They have the capability and the will. We know that they have been mapping out the locations of wind farms, offshore wind farms, uh, gas pipes, data cables, etc. So the problem here is that we know that the, uh, the attribution problem, uh, how do we act in a world where we see more and more these types of threats, but we still need to be able to create a deterrent. But the problem is that if we don't have 
a precedent case of, for example, pot potential countermeasures, if we are able to indicate or uh, if we indicate either one of these uh, a state actor behind such uh, attacks or threats against critical infrastructure, how, we, how are we able to deter them in the future? I think this is the, the core issue here. Excellent, uh, Alex. Let me let me get to you. Um, uh, just to uh, give give our our, our, our viewers a, a quick uh, sort of overview of what happened uh, last month, and and how this is actually related uh, with uh, several other incidents that happened this year and 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 last year. Uh, to to set the stage about what I think uh, you know the, the central argument that Henry is, is is putting forward, and that is how are we going to deal with this uh, below the threshold. Um, uh, threats as 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 they increase in the future. Mm -hmm. So basically, in in early October, um, we had some very very serious bad weather uh, in the Baltic Sea, uh, Finland, uh, Estonia, in that area, with some uh, flooding, snowstorms, etc. across the region. Uh, and during that night, this was the eighth uh, uh, of October. It was reported. Um, at both ends of the Baltic connector pipeline, a natural uh, a gas pipeline between uh, Finland and Estonia, as well as transmissions over a data cable uh, had been interrupted, breached, damaged. Um, Finnish authorities, Finnish president, for instance, quickly came out, uh, publicized uh, the fact that this had been fairly early, obviously done by what was called like an external action. Now that can lead to a number of different interpretations. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Um, in the week or so, though, these both basically happened simultaneously, which is uh, the interesting part, or at least in, in quick succession might be the better way to put it. Um, about a week and a half later, the Swedish government came out and it said one of their uh, digital fiber optic cables extending from Sweden to Estonia had also been damaged, not as seriously, but still it had been interrupted. Um, and even in the last two days, we now have a new twist in that the uh, Russians have actually come out and said that one of theirs was damaged as well, which I think um, we can also get uh, to uh, in a moment. So uh, as part of that, uh, Finnish and Estonian authorities uh, have been uh, in leading this investigation, um, looking into it. It's been determined uh, that um, through different tracking, etc. information, in fact, a Chinese container ship was traveling through the area, I should say a Hong Kong registered uh, vessel, um, and some photographic evidence, etc., shows that it was missing its anchor. Finnish authorities recovered uh, the anchor that they believe did the damage. Um, maybe as a, a final point here on the general kind of what happened, uh, that anchor looks like it was dragged tens of kilometers along the seabed, um, which... Uh, would be an unusual circumstance to say the least uh, for a vessel moving, uh, you know, still moving uh, towards its port uh, during that time. And I mean, I, you know, on that point, I think it is important to highlight that, uh, and you, you mentioned this in the piece, that this ship is actually not an ordinary ship. It actually recently made the news, right? Um, crossing, so, uh, crossing the Arctic. Uh, it, so it is not a, you know, <laughs> Uh, some cruise ship with um, whatever uh, a, a, a crew that is not particularly, uh, you know, uh, incompetent, etc. You cannot do that sort of um, uh, crossing uh, without a, 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 you know, a well-trained 
uh, crew with some experience, etc. So it is even more unusual um, to do uh, to do so. I mean, this is this is this is as if you know uh, F1 uh, you know, driver pilot don't know how to parallel park. Uh, so you so it it makes it even more suspicious that this is not your you know off the shelf uh, you know cargo ship. Uh, but oh. it, it, yeah. You know, so it, it makes it even more 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 uh, more concerning that this is just an accident. Yeah, I think the fact that it was sailing through rather difficult waters, it, it traversed the uh, Northern Sea route. Uh, this is the route uh, um, to the north of Russia through uh, the Arctic Ocean and adjacent seas uh, between China and uh, and Russia. You know, then going through the Baltic, obviously. So no, this this vessel has gone through some. Uh, there are definitely some sensitive and, and difficult uh, navigational areas. Um, so which makes it even even harder. But um, as as you highlighted again in the piece, um, uh, and, and I want to get get uh, get to you on this one. This is of course comes after a series of similar incidents uh, last year in twenty twenty two. Uh, we have the severing of the cable in, in Svalbard. Uh, we have, of course, the, the infamous uh, explosion of North, uh, Nord Stream 2 uh, pipelines uh, uh, in Andersi. And um, uh, and uh, our Danish friends, uh, together with the uh, uh, with, with our Norwegian um, and, and Swedish uh, friends, had a, an excellent podcast series called The Cold Front. Uh, the DR did that. And if you didn't have a chance to listen to it, it is a six-part, I think, series that actually gets into very detailed, um, uh, you know, uh, how the Russian espionage operations um, and, and, and subversion and, and hybrid warfare takes place in uh, in, in Scandinavia uh, that highlighted this, this one. So it, it comes after a, a number of incidents in the region uh, that targeted the uh, the critical uh, sea uh, subsea infrastructure. Um, could you uh, talk a little bit about uh, the importance of those um, those initial um, uh, events uh, from last year and how we can see a pattern here? Well, I would look at the development uh, from from Ukraine war perspective. Yes, in the sense that the ramifications. Russia suffering losses to its conventional military and also to its sort of great power status and, and its ability to project uh, military uh, and uh, uh, just generally broadly intelligence operations has clearly been severed. Uh, the bear is, uh, is, is damaged but not out. <clears throat> and in the short term, this definitely means that since it's trying to build back its capabilities, conventional capabilities. This will take years. So this is a long-term development. But the short term is that while this develop this is taking place, it will resort more into, for example, nuclear saber rattling, but also these gray zone oper operations. This is one way of sort of keeping us on our toes and reminding us that there's a challenge that we have to deal with. But this still goes underneath the uh, threshold of Conventional for uh, warfare in Article Five, for example, within NATO. So I think this is something we are going to see, unfortunately, more and more. Uh, and you know, for example, this case, we don't know yet if it's if it's Russia, if it's a state actor or not. Mm. But as we argue in the piece, <clears throat> it fundamentally doesn't really matter that much because you know, this is let's say it's bad seamanship, which you know. It's possible, but yet seems a bit unlikely if you ask me. It's too many coincidences in this case. But if it's bad seamanship, we still have to, it's still a very good trial balloon 
for NATO and for others and adversaries to perceive how we react in cases like these. What is our reaction? What is our resolve? Uh, so, the, so in this sense, uh, as we say, it's to a degree secondary whether it's intentional or not. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, just to quote Ian Fleming uh, real quick here, uh, as he painted the, the, the author of uh, uh, James Bond uh, novels, as he as he pointed out, right? Once is is, is coincidence, once is happenstance, twice is coincidence, three times is enemy action. So uh, <laughs> we are seeing uh, back to back to back uh, too many uh, too many coincidences uh, to take them to be um, to be able to explain it by accident or stupidity. Indeed. And I would also just remind, Robert, remind that even though we are now talking about subsea critical infrastructure, this is not just about subsea critical when, when we talk about these gray zone operations. For example, in the case of Finland, that shares a long, it's an 800 mile border, 1,300 kilometers with the Russians. Uh, in, 20, in the turn of 2015 and 2016, we saw <clears throat> all of a sudden thousands of refugees being pushed from Russia over to, to uh, uh, points where crossing points between Finland and Russia. Uh, we've seen uh, the uh, uh, government officials confiscating property in Finland that have been procured mm. by Russians that are in the proximity of military uh, areas and militarily strategically important locations. So it's just this the subsea actions and activities. It falls under this phenomena where we're going to continue seeing more and more uh, cases that are sort of not meant to completely take us down to our knees, but to just test where our weaknesses and vulnerabilities lie. How do we react to these? And most, very often I've seen that this is sort of, well, I mean, you have to give credit to the Russians in the sense that they are able to sort of try to turn the strengths uh, of an open society as, as their weaknesses in the sense that, you know, let's say you have disinformation campaigns. Well, I mean, how do you regulate this without, uh, attacking, uh, you know, freedom of speech, for example, and there's there's nothing illegal of buying uh, bad property overpriced, but if it just happens to locate right next to a military base, so I mean, these are the sort of kind of issues that we're dealing with. That most of these things that are being done, obviously not sabotage against critical infrastructure, but some of these things are not illegal or against the law. It's actually it's a loophole within the law that is trying to be used in their benefit. Yeah, so it actually makes it what the Brits would call a wicked problem, right? So it is a very hard to deal with. And I think what you highlighted that the the, the Kremlin increasingly uh, rely on a barbell approach and its uh, its relations uh, with with the West in terms of, on the one hand, increasing saber uh, nuclear saber rattling because of its uh, you know its its conventional forces being decimated. Uh, in Ukraine, therefore, would continue to rely on its strategic forces, which happen to also be located in the Arctic uh, more and more. Uh, and on the on the other end of the spectrum, increasingly rely on subversion, on hybrid warfare, um, as 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 you just pointed out. Not only the you know uh, subsequent critical infrastructure, but more broadly engaging in in, in subversive activities in the West to take advantage. Of the open nature of our society, so uh, you know it's it's either the very high level uh, threats on the one hand, which by the way nuclear deterrence works, and we we know that it works, and it, 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 you know, we understand that. So that's maybe sort of the easier uh, part of the question to deal with. But what to do with the other end of the barbell is is a question which I want to get to to Alex here. Um, maybe two things, Alex. One, uh, could you sort of uh, give 
very quick in a few sentences um, uh, uh, sort of overview of why these um, uh, subsequent uh, infrastructure are, are critical. Why do we call them critical and why, why, why they're important? And the second is, just to follow up on Henry's in this point, how do you see this uh, playing out in a way that, in a, in a broader geopolitical context and why it matters to Canada? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the basic point about critical infrastructure here, I mean, it's hard to imagine in some sense things being more critical. I mean, you know, people are well aware of the satellite communications, you know, innovations like Starlink, etc. But the huge majority of the world's data, uh, you know, the new currency of power flows through these lines across the Atlantic, the Pacific, through the Baltic, Mediterranean. I mean, this is the really the circulatory system for information in the world. So, I mean, these are the high end of critical infrastructure if you think about our day-to-day -day lives and, and where the world is going in terms of data integration. Um, these are new choke points in a way, right? We, I mean, when we talk about shipping and like energy and, and particularly oil, et cetera, we tend to talk about choke points in, in transit, right? the Suez Canal, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, when it comes to data, there are these choke points in the sense that these, these uh, cables provide an opportunity yeah. to disrupt them uh, in a significant way. I mean, you know, ever since this sort of world of, of, of transoceanic cables started, that's been the case. I mean, the British intelligence services, you know, back in the First World War took advantage of it, et cetera. So, you know, these, uh, as information and data become more and more important to us, these linkages have become more important. And, you know, all these advances, you know, again, we often think of uh, 5G and, and these things, which, of course, uh, on, on the more local regional level are absolutely essential. But the interconnecting arteries of this are these networks and or are these cables. And they are there are going to be more and more of them in the world um, as, as, again, as the Internet of Things, as the industrial Internet of Things, as, you know, as we connect more and more objects uh, to one another and, and take advantage of that, um, we're going to see more of this, not less. Um, so what is its relevance to Canada? Well, I think we can look at this two different ways. I mean, certainly in one sense, it's relevant to Canada because many of these cables come ashore in Canada. Uh, a number of them come, there's three of them that come ashore in, in Nova Scotia, one that will soon come ashore from Japan to British Columbia. Um, we have one um, between Greenland and Newfoundland. Uh, there will be one between Norway and Labrador. And then there's the more local connections. We already have them running up uh, the um, eastern shore of Hudson's Bay, and that will be extended to the northern tips of, um, of uh, Quebec. Uh, the province of Quebec in Canada uh, within the next couple of years. Uh, the capital of Nunavut, the territory of Nunavut, uh, is in the process of um, being connected to, to, Labr or to Labrador. Um, so, and there's all kinds of these plans, terrestrial, subsea, uh, in the Canadian north, they will appear and they're appearing everywhere. Um, more and more with time. So, you know, I think we can maybe get into a slightly longer conversation in a moment about, well, you know, maybe the hybrid structure as it relates to the hybrid threats as they relate to the to North America and the North American Arctic, because it is a very different environment than what uh, Finland and, and the Baltic are, are dealing with, where well, the Swedish prime minister, he was a prime minister, so certainly a Swedish government official, senior government official, said, you know, it's like spaghetti underneath the Baltic Sea in terms of uh, pipeline and data infrastructure. 
So I'd also add to what Henry had to say uh, about the fact that, you know, it's a habit of mind, a human cognitive pattern to, to look for patterns. And sometimes that's a mistake and making connections where things are not. But unfortunately, because of this hybrid space that we've seen, uh, as well as the stated, you know, strategic intentions of, of Russia, uh, we do need to entertain these uh, hypotheses and look at them, you know, potentially of whether they fit into a campaign. Um, you know, again, these are multi-front efforts that we've seen. Henry mentioned the the uh, manipulation of migrants uh, and trying to put them into difficult situations and force uh, um, uh, other states to to uh, take them in. Um, but we've also seen, you know, as you mentioned, the investigation uh, earlier this year, or over a number of years, in fact, coming out earlier this year by uh, Swedish, uh, Norwegian, and Danish uh, journalists about, you know, basically the multi fronts, the activities of Russian espionage services um, throughout uh, the Nordic countries. We've seen the actions of the various Nordic governments to expel many, many Russian diplomats for activities inconsistent with their status, uh, as we all know what that means. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, we have, you know, for instance, Nikolai Patrushev, you know, a longtime senior leader in the Kremlin, you know, again, in, 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 Northwestern Russia near the Finnish border, you know, reviving uh, narratives from the 1930s about, you know, Finns trying to promote separatism and foreign intelligence services, etc. So, you know, the Russian, you know, the Kremlin, Kremlin regime makes these sorts of statements. Um, and we know that they, uh, you know, are always looking for these vulnerabilities. So it is, is sadly uh, something that that the security perspective needs to be brought into. Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is an extremely important point. And uh, I, I'm a big fan of the word subversion rather than um, hybrid warfare, uh, because I think it, first, it, it also highlights the fact that this is nothing new. Uh, the tools might have changed, but the, the you know adapted to the new technology. But this has been as a part of a statecraft, as a, as a part of the tool toolkit for the statecraft, uh, has been with us for for centuries. Um, and here, I think the the important nature of what you highlighted, um, uh, the, the the opportunistic nature uh, of uh, not only sort of uh, Kremlin, but also. Uh, like China uh, under CCP and other other authoritarian regimes, where they try to map out these vulnerabilities um, uh, in order to be able to uh, manipulate and, and and target them when an opportunity presents itself, uh, it presents a particular challenge. Because we're not necessarily dealing with you know uh, someone sitting in a you know uh, smoke filled uh, room and, and making a twenty five year plan to precisely target uh, you know the. The, the elderly lady on Facebook to to undermine uh, democracy, but what they're trying to do is trying to map out the 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 the, the social fissures and 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 physical um, vulnerabilities in our societies, be it critical infrastructure, be it you know uh, polarization, uh, be it uh, disinformation, be it you know elite capture, you know corruption, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And we shouldn't really forget about the corruption component to it, which is a, a integral to the, the Russian uh, subversion, particularly in Europe, but also also elsewhere through elite capture. Um, it is an opportunistic mapping of, of things that can be used later on. And that requires, and Alex, you do have a, a, 
uh, you know, several years uh, of experience in, in Canadian uh, security and intelligence community. It, it requires a counterintelligence approach too. You know, you, you need to be able to um, uh, deal with these rather than um, it, it, with, with that particular mindset, right? I think uh, one of the things that are missing, uh, what you kind of highlighted, is is this mindset. We're trying to do this above board, and this is about diplomatic relations, et cetera, et cetera. But it is also about how to identify these subversive activities, whatever the level they are engaging in, and developing you know, uh, and strengthening our, our counterintelligence capabilities, uh, sharing those particular information and pushing back because fundamentally what they're trying to do is to uh, uh, to, to subvert our societies with whatever the means uh, that are available and taking the opportunities as as they come. And and of course, Finland has uh, quite a bit uh, of experience dealing with uh, with Russian subversion. Uh, so, Henry, I want to I want to turn to you. When you look at sort of what from the societal resilience part, you know, how can we going to sort of deal with this, uh, you know, below the threshold activities, the subversion, hybrid warfare? Uh, what are some of the you know the, the, the key lessons that that Canada and other allies can learn uh, from the Finnish uh, Finnish experience? Well, for us, I guess the it comes from tradition. I mean, obviously, our experiences in the in the Second World War. Uh, fighting against the Soviet Union, you had to mobilize all of the society for the campaign to maintain your independence and territorial integrity to the to a degree it was possible. So it comes from that tradition that uh, in a country with our population currently at 5.5 million and our size, you really have to mobilize all the possible resources uh, to sort of the defending the society in its different fronts. And today it has developed into this, this concept of comprehensive security that we like to advocate to guests whenever they arrive to Finland. And the point is that you have a very functioning division of labor, uh, connections, communications, and dialogue between private sector and government sector actors. This means that, you know, especially with those companies who have a critical role in the functions of the society, whether it be, you know, food, water, electricity, gas, all these supplies that are mandatory for civilians and people to just maintain their lives. So this is something I think uh, many societies should look into. I mean, obviously there are tailored solutions. Some countries are bigger, some countries' diasporas are different and you know, just the setting is different. For us, of course, being a frontline country uh, with, with our, uh, well, like I said, five and a half million population, which is not that lot compared to many of our other allies, I mean, you can learn some lessons from here, of course. This is the preparedness one is, is, is for example, with this case that when this, this Baltic connector uh, pipeline is now out of use, we have rented an LNG terminal that's going to replace it. And also we had been diversifying our energy palette for years now, for decades now, so, so that we're not reliant on Russian energy. So therefore this decoupling between uh, where the Western Russia that, that, that has taken place since February, 2022, hasn't really been, uh, hasn't really hit Finland that hard compared to, for example, countries like Germany, who, let's, let's, just, say, let's just say it, have made very big mistakes in the energy politics when, from a national security perspective, being reliant, and in this sense, being enabling certain behavior by the Russians. So you also have to look at these aspects. But I guess uh, the other thing for us is that when you look at the, from the military uh, security perspective, we have had our conscription service in place 
And unlike many countries in the 90s, when the peace dividend and this sort of Fukuyama end of history, thinking sort of penetrated most countries when the threat of a grand war in Europe uh, diminished after the collapse of the Soviet Union, we decided to maintain the conscript service. We never really dropped the ball on national defense in this sense. And, and for years, uh, especially after uh, before 2014, you know, Finland was usually laughed upon. Like, why do you still prepare for these old types of wars? Why do you have this conscript service system? I mean, if you look at Sweden, that shares pretty much the similar position that we do geopolitically. Uh, and and uh, they let go of their conscription system. They downsized their military and now they're building back capabilities. So this takes decades to build back to, to a level which you would need now. Not not only after ten or fifteen years, but you you need those capabilities now. So I guess it comes from this preparedness mindset mentality. I know that when you know times are tough, then people ask for you know money for tanks and defense and guns. But then when you know times are easier, then people say, why do we buy these tanks? But this is money out of education or things like these. So I think I mean there's a certain type of uh, uh, verify and then trust type of mindset when it comes to preparedness, adapting these concepts that really highlight the importance of, of cooperation between different actors that they all know what they need to do if crisis comes. Yeah, no, I, I think this is this is an excellent, excellent point in the, in the sense that we need to be able to switch to uh, what we have been talking about uh, in the Institute for a while, the, the, that our society, um, our companies, uh, our, our politicians, and our, our our taxpayers need to understand that we need to be uh, paying initial security premium. The world uh, is is different right now, and if you don't, we will pay. Uh, you know, if you don't want to pay pennies today, we will pay hundreds of dollars in the future, and that won't be enough, right? So that is, I think, an important uh, important component. Yes. To just to, to to sum up on that, the cheapest war is the one that was never fought. Exactly. Exactly. So, so we need to be prepared before it gets there, and that's kind of the uh, the notion and that that mindset shift. And I think this is quite important. And I don't know whether Alex would agree with me, but particularly when it comes to the, the, the private sector here, uh, here in Canada, we don't necessarily have uh, that sort of way of looking at how uh, their actions, particularly with their dealings with uh, with with hostile actors. Um, is also a, a, a national security issue. So when you're dealing with, uh, you know, Russia, when you're dealing with China and, and, and others, this is not just any commercial transaction. This is just not any any other business. And we have to be able to think about the national security implications on that. Um, so uh, as we wrap up, gentlemen, I want to ask you um, uh, one last question. Uh, what comes next? How do you see the, uh, the development of, you know, under uh, threshold, hybrid warfare, subversion, whatever you want to call, uh, tactics and, and and incidences and, and attacks by by our adversaries, be it Russia, be it China, be it others, uh, evolving in the uh, in the next three to five years. And what is your one one suggestion uh, on how uh, can we uh, confront uh, and 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 deal with this uh, with this wicked problem? Alex, let me start with you, and then uh, we'll we'll end up with him. I think this is a fact of, of international relations now. It's not some unusual piece or, or novel piece. I think we've seen enough now, whether it's you know Russian interference in U.S. electoral or many other European elections, you know disinformation campaigns that extend from Greenland to Mozambique. 
um, whether it's assassination activities in the UK or Germany uh, and other words, there's allegations, you know, it never got a lot of attention, but, you know, the explosion of a, uh, of a Czech uh, arms depot that, you know, they now believe had, had connections to Russian security services. You know, if you just have to look in the, in the South China Sea and look at uh, China's behavior, you know, using fishing vessels, Coast Guard, et cetera, to push its, um, you know, uh, ill-founded sovereignty claims uh, in, in parts of those waters, you know, harassment um, of vessels, et cetera. To see that this this is just a feature of the way uh, international relations is, is going to unfold, and 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 you know this will align, and the intensity will increase as geopolitical tensions increase. Uh, the trend lines in Europe suggest that that is well established for the coming years. It will take major major changes in U.S. China relations to see it diminish uh, in in the Indo Pacific. So I think it's a fact of life that we need to deal with it now. One suggestion, you know, I think in the Canadian context is that we do need to be thinking about resilience. Um, we do need to be thinking about preparedness. Uh, we have a general theme, for instance, in the Arctic of, you know, building our surveillance and awareness capabilities. This needs to accelerate. This needs to accelerate quite a bit. We need to bring some imagination uh, about, you know, how a melting Arctic uh, scenario with increased traffic, you know, it's very, very low now, but the, the trend lines will, will go up in this over the, in the coming decades, really emphasizes the need for subsea and surface uh, and aerospace um, protection or, or surveillance and monitoring. The aerospace piece will get, uh, has the NATO, or sorry, the NORAD, North American uh, uh, framework for, for dealing there. But the surface and, and particularly the subsurface, you know, again, as, as Henry said, if you let capabilities wither, it takes a long time to build back. And we are in that situation with um, certain air submarine fleet, and uh, we need to add some, you know, underwater sensoring um, sensors to uh, make sure we have the right uh, awareness of what's going on there. No, uh, I mean, the, the the best time to do it was yesterday, that the, the second best time is to do it today. The sooner we are uh, realizing it and ramping up those capabilities, uh, the less damage we'll have uh, in the future. Uh, so, uh, Henry, let me ask you, what comes next and what's one policy suggestion you'll have? Well, fundamentally, it is all related to, to the question of where does these hostile actions stem from? And it comes from the strategic rivalry between great powers. And for the foreseeable future, we're not really seeing a moment where we would see some, some sort of detente, unfortunately. And especially in the case of European security, it's, it's the exact opposite with the current Russian regime enabling itself into this, this war that most likely will lead to a degree in a diminishing great power status for, for Putin and Russia, which on the other hand leads to more, I would say, risk-taking and potentially dangerous behavior. And this means that if you, if you ask for one policy recommendation, I would give you the so-called DDR strategy, which is the defense, uh, deterrence, and resilience. You'd have to Not invest in all these domains. Yeah, but this is, these are the domains you really have to invest in. Unfortunately, we're not in a time where peace conferences and uh, these sort of um, trust initiatives are 
really uh, rising in the ranks, unfortunately. We don't see an opening for something like this at, at, at this time. And I think one also very important thing that we highlighted in the text is that what happens in the next three or five years is not just something that happens while we sit by and watch. We're actually actively participating in forming the potential past for you for future, meaning in practice that bad things will happen if we enable them. I think this is the lesson we must learn from the past two decades of dealing with the Russians, that we've been carrying the carrot and the stick at the same time. So basically, at the, at, on, on one hand, we've been uh, uh, condemning their behavior in, in Chechnya in the 90s, in 2008, in Georgia, in 2014, and in Ukraine. But on, then on the other hand, we were enabling this with you know economic carrots. Russian money was flowing in the banks of London. Gas pipes are being built and other energy infrastructure projects between European countries and the Russians. So being consistent with our approach, being consistent of what we understand that is the threat right now and deterring it and preparing for that, I think this is the key to success. Excellent. Um, gentlemen, um, this has been a, a great conversation. Um, you have been uh, watching and listening uh, Inside Policy Talks, uh, MLI's uh, premium podcast on uh, everything uh, public policy. I am Balkan Devlin, uh, Director of Transatlantic Program here at MLI. And today I was joined by Alex Diel, Senior Fellow at the Magdalene Laurier Institute, and Henry Van Hanen, a uh, Research Fellow at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs. Um, thanks for uh, watching and uh, continue uh, to follow this space for more on geopolitics and, and Canada's place in the world and how uh, we need to be prepared to deal with a much more uncertain and dangerous world uh, for decades to come. Thank you.